Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. I'm Marcus Robertson, reporter for Becker's Healthcare. Today, I am pleased to be joined by Bob Winder. Bob is the president and founder of Logan Growth Advisors, a mergers and acquisitions advisory firm that specializes in healthcare. Bob is also a professor at BYU and Utah State University teaching private equity and mergers and acquisitions. Prior to Logan Growth Advisors, Bob worked as a private equity investor and then raised his own fund and purchased a group of dental practices, which he ran and later sold. Bob majored in finance at BYU and earned an MBA from Northwestern. Tells me he's a novice rancher, an avid CrossFitter, and the proud father of five children. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Marcus. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I mentioned already that you've bought, run, and then sold a group of dental practices. Uh, I'm curious, what is a buyer or DSO looking for in those transactions and how do they handle the process? It's a good question. So when I was on the buy side, call it 10, a little over 10 years ago, coming out of the last recession, really, so buy side meaning private equity, we were very focused on recession resistant assets, flight to quality, as, as we term it in the investment community. And healthcare was it. We really wanted to invest in healthcare. And I felt like at the time, dental specifically was becoming in vogue on Wall Street. A lot of uh, early entrants, a lot of new DSOs that are now big names. And back then, and it, re it remains true today, we were very interested in scalable platforms with low risk. So kind of weighing those two, scalability. So this is, you know, do you have a team in place? Is this truly a platform versus just a cluster of practices? Are you doing anything unique? Doctor recruiting and retention became even more and more key over the past 10 years, whereas now that's just absolutely essential. Having a better mousetrap per se to attract and retain really good doctor talent. Because at the end of the day, that's that's the whole business. And then you couple that with the risk component. So if you think about private equity investors, these folks, they're LPs, they're, they're investors, they've already made money. So they're wealthy. So wealth creation versus wealth preservation is a very different mindset. So these folks certainly want to continue to earn good returns, but wealth preservation is always top of mind. So often I hear, are there how many paths to zero are there in this investment or how many ways are there to screw this thing up? And then ultimately we have a zero return or we lose our money. And so if you think about how to apply that to healthcare, or in this case, you know, dental specifically, it's payer mix is a lot of times what's focused on. So is this primarily Medicaid, which a lot of times the investment community views as having high stroke of pen risk, a lot of regulatory issues and a lot of things outside of our control as operators or investors. So oftentimes that's, that reduces the multiple, whereas more of a commercial or even fee-for-service cash payer mix increases it because that's viewed as less risky. So that combination of growth and you know, financial economics and future economics versus risk, that's really how, these, uh, how, how private equity or how investors weigh an opportunity in order to pursue it and ultimately value it. So weighing that that growth outlook versus the risk with the payer mix being really crucial in there. Is that what you were saying, basically? Yeah, payer mix is a really good example of something that folks 
focus on heavily. Of course, there's a lot of other things, you know, have you had any, you know, issues with regulatory bodies or OIG or there's certainly some things with the model. So there's a lot of, if you think about dental specifically, there's been different versions of the DSO, call it DSO 1.0, which was, hey, we're going to buy you out. You're going to become an associate. You're going to work for us for a couple of years, potentially retire. This is more catering to the baby boomers. So call it Heartland in its early days, you know, catering to that generation. And then along comes MB2 and says, hey, you know what? A lot of doctors want to retain upside and maybe they're a little bit younger. So how about we just buy 70% and they keep 30% and they do it at the corporate level. Now they're part of these private equity driven liquidity events and they can have a piece of that. And that was really well received and kind of broke open that door for private equity to invest in the more complicated cap structures or cap table with, with more owners. And then today we have the 3.0 model where as a dentist, you can retain ownership at a joint venture level, at the practice level, or a group of practices, continue to get distributions and potentially be a part of liquidity events in the future. So there's been a lot of different versions of this. And that's that's also come into play for how DSOs, these bigger dental groups, and even medical groups doing similar things, view acquisition targets. So it seems, seems uh, things have gotten a lot more participatory, uh, you know, kind of individual owners uh, get, getting uh, more chance of the action, you know, kind of a, a bite at the apple of their practice still. Absolutely. It's, it's a great time in the history of the world to be a seller and to have opportunities for partnership and to take chips off the table. You know, when I... When I raised a fund and went and bought a group of dental practices, I assumed I had maybe a five, seven year window before private equity and Wall Street kind of moved on to the next sector and dental wouldn't be as interesting anymore. But I was wrong. It's been, I don't know, eight, nine years or so. And it's still just as exciting and interesting uh, as it was before, if not more so. It's just such a big fragmented industry and it continues to evolve and lots of different opportunities. So it's been interesting to watch that evolution and specifically DSOs trying to figure out ways to attract and retain the best talent through some of these partnerships is what's been the most interesting as of late. Uh, well, I, I got to agree with you. Uh, Becker's actually had our uh, one of our first dental events uh, earlier this year, and the energy level was uh, just through the roof. Um, and, and yeah, hearing a lot of those same things you were talking about. But you, you have a lot of experience. And I mentioned before, you taught at BYU for five years now. What kind of cautionary tales do you tell your private equity and venture capital students? What are some, some hurdles you can help us avoid? Hmm. So there's two audiences here, right? There's the private equity audience, the investor audience, and then there's the founder, the dentist audience. And I, I like to preach to both sides. And so uh, for my class, I say, hey, this is this is the, these are the right things to do and these are the wrong things to do. And a lot of times, because we know the playbook, I see, unfortunately, a lot of the wrong things to do when we're in transactions and we see, you know, a buyer come in and sure, they might have a great headline number, a great multiple, but when that's only a small piece of the puzzle, that's just a small piece of the story. Oftentimes they use that big number up front to get your attention but the devil's in the details. So at the end of the day, a deal is comprised of three main things. I consider it three legs of the stool. So the first is EBITDA. 
earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. We've all heard it. It's kind of a nebulous term. It's very subjective. Unfortunately, there's a lot of negotiation, a lot of back and forth to determine this number that really determines the valuation of the deal when that's applied to a multiple. So sure, you can rely on the buyer to calculate your EBITDA. And are they incentivized to uncover all the golden nuggets, all the addbacks and positive adjustments for you? No, they're not. And the third parties that they bring in to do that, they know who pays their bill, their bill, even though they consider themselves third party. So oftentimes we see the EBITDA number, sure, that you might get a high multiple, but on what EBITDA is that applied to? So EBITDA is a big one. There's a lot of work and there's a lot of room to make improvements. If we just take the time, do the work to do a quality of earnings up front to bring in our own folks and uncover all those golden nuggets, do the adjustments, really put our best foot forward, be very aggressive, but still defensible on our EBITDA number. The second is the multiple. So the way to get the best multiple is to run a competitive process. That competitive tension creates magic. I've seen crazy things happen. When I was on the buy side and the sell side, it's, I love being on the sell side now because being on the buy side, it is the worst. It is the worst when you're trying to buy a great company, make an investment with a founder that you really like, great business model. You don't know who else is bidding on this deal. You don't know what it's going to take to win. And so sometimes it becomes irrational. I mean, that that mental battle is an emotional turmoil is horrible if you don't know what it's going to take to win. On the sell side, it's beautiful because sometimes crazy things happen and you get amazing terms. I mean, we just got a term sheet in 20 minutes ago on a deal that we've had in market that's just, it's just fantastic. And it's because of that, you know, they need to do, put their best foot forward to win and they have conviction they're going to do what it takes. So running a competitive process, getting the best multiple possible is absolutely necessary versus being a victim of a proprietary deal. So someone reaches out to you specifically, hey, I love your business. Let's be friends. How about we buy, I buy into your business and we're, you know, we're fair. You don't need to talk to anyone else. That, I mean, when I was in private equity, when I was on the buy side, that was like the holy grail. And if we could get a proprietary deal that wasn't shopped around, man, that was beautiful. So don't be the victim of a proprietary deal. The third is terms. So EBITDA, multiple in terms. The devil is in the details. You might get a big headline number, but let's unpack that. What are the terms? How is the are the economics paid? Is it all up front? Hardly ever in healthcare is it all up front. It's almost always a portion up front and then a portion over time or rollover equity, seller notes, earnouts. I had an experience not too long ago where on page... I don't know, maybe 74 of the purchase agreement, halfway down the page in one paragraph, one line, they slid in this term that effectively said 30% of all the founders' future upside will be subject, will be swept by the investor group as part of the carried interest formula. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. I mean, this was almost a 50-50 deal. So the founder had come in, you know, taking some chips off the table, getting some help for growth, you know, all the right things. And then all of a sudden they slide this in there. Stuff like that happens all the time. And it's really unfortunate, you know, working capital adjustments. Nobody understands working capital. I, I'm not even going to try to explain it on this call, but almost always that turns into a huge argument and fight at the end over hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's, it's subjective and it's a negotiation. Oftentimes the seller gets taken advantage of. Now, one, another thing that really irks me 
when I'm working for sellers is if we do a deal with a strategic, a bigger DSO or bigger medical group, sure, you might get, you know, 60, 70% cash up front, but then 30, 40% you're invited to roll over, you know, roll over equity invest in at, at the corporate level. But at what multiple are you buying in at? They never tell you that, right? They say, oh, geez, yeah, we're buying you for eight times. And you're going to be so fortunate to roll your equity with us. And, you know, we, you know, usually folks make two or three times their money with us. Aren't you so fortunate? But they don't tell you, wait, at, mul at what multiple am I buying in at? If you're always at a mark to market quarterly reporting performance, and if you're, if you think you're trading at 15 times, that means I'm being bought out at eight and I'm having to buy back in at, at 15 on the same day, immediately being diluted by half. They don't tell you that. But it's questions you have to ask, and there's ways to get around that and mitigate some of those risks. So EBITDA, multiple in terms, those are the three legs of the stool. And if you really focus on each of those, there's ways to make really good fair deals. But as a buyer, there's ways to really take advantage of sellers if they're not properly re represented. Okay. And so you can kind of uh, avoid uh, a lot of the hurdles by really making sure you're, you're drilling down, focusing in on, on those three legs. Exactly. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, that you do love being on the sell side and uh, gave gave some advice to our audience to not be the victim of a proprietary deal, but on the buyer side can be a little bit trickier. You said uh, it's hard to know what it takes to win and it can make you potentially irrational. I'm wondering what can you do to make sure you're not bowing to that irrationality, you know, in the middle of the deal? Oh man, it's tough. I've had, so private equity, typical fund structure is you have five years to invest a specific amount of money and then another five years to harvest those investments. So depending on your, your fund life cycle, you may be in a heated rush to put money to work. And I love to meet folks that are in those situations because we can certainly help. But when you're a buyer and you're in that situation, it's it's pretty stressful because you want to make good, sound, defensible investments, but you also know you have to win deals. You have to put money to work. And so I think there is an inherent conflict based on that structure, or there can be, and you just have to be careful to continue to be prudent and not just do a deal because you feel like you have to do a deal or because you have a lot of sunk cost or time into a deal, but still, you know, follow your thesis and do the proper vetting up front. I mean, I look at my deal I did. I, I was much younger. I bought a group of just a small group of dental practices right out of MBA school. I, I, I deferred halfway through MBA school and raised some capital, bought a group of dental practice, ended up finishing my MBA on the side. Uh, and I was, I, at that time, I was pretty eager to get in. And after the deal, I quickly realized that some of my assumptions just weren't true that the market was actually a lot more competitive than I initially thought. The doctors were way harder to recruit and retain than I initially thought. So my dentist partner was a lot more passive than I thought he would be. So I just made some bad assumptions going into it. And I, you know, of course I don't regret anything because I'm really happy for the lessons I learned, but just being prudent in your, in your due diligence to really confirm those assumptions up front, you're gonna save a lot of sleepless nights. And make sure you're not being backed into a deal that, you know, when you think about it, is, is not going to end up being a good one for you. Exactly. They're hard to undo. Uh, 
if not impossible. Well, let's pretend I'm a practice owner or a DSO exec. I've got a big transaction in the works. What do I need to be looking for in an advisor to shepherd me through the process? I would reverse, I would try to reverse engineer. So if you think about, all right, what are the most important aspects of the deal? EBITDA multiple in terms. So I want to find an advisor that's going to help me optimize each of those three. So EBITDA, do they have the internal capabilities to do a quality of earnings, to do a really, really robust defensible earnings analysis that will be respected by the buyers? You know, or do they know third parties that they can bring in and help manage that? Is it fully integrated? How involved do they get? Do they really understand this stuff? Uh, number two, multiple. How robust of a process do they run? Or they just have a few key relationships from business school and kind of some quid, quid pro quo relationships that, you know, there's a conflict. Yeah, we see that, unfortunately. Uh, so really understanding how, how well they do in that marketing process, creating competitive tension, putting together really, really good defensible professional marketing materials, the pitch book, the financial analysis, et cetera. And then number three on the terms, do they, uh, do they get involved? How involved do they get? I've, I've, I've had experiences when we were on the buy side where a broker would say, oh, as a rule of thumb, I had this happen. This is a true story. As a rule of thumb, I don't get involved after the LOI is signed. I couldn't believe it. Like, what are you, you're missing a whole third of the deal. I mean, all, all the devil's in the details here. You are literally walking away and just leaving your client blind to be negotiated there in, in this the whole third phase of the process. Unbelievable. But unfortunately, that's not uncommon. So how involved do they get? Do they do they understand the terms? Do they understand the buyer's playbook? You know, how many deals have they done? Do they really understand how these purchase agreements work? Do they work well with the attorney group? Do they negotiate, you know, how do they negotiate all that? So Focusing on those three legs, I think, is really key. I think the second piece that's interesting is oftentimes I think we're seduced into believing that if we hire a big name, that we're going to get a better result. So, all right, I want to sell my business, so I'm going to hire Goldman Sachs because they are a big name investment bank, and therefore I'm going to have a great outcome. But if you think about it, all right, the reality is I'm only as good as my deal team. And how important am I to that specific group of individuals that's running my deal? How important am I to them? So if they have, you know, 15 other deals they're working on and I'm a small fry to them and they don't really care about me, it doesn't matter the name that I'm getting. I'm, I'm not going to get a great service. I'm not going to get a great outcome versus, all right, I'm going to focus on the individuals I'm working with versus the name. What is their experience? How, how important am I to them? Is this a, a more important deal for them? Still something within their wheelhouse and you know something they have experience with, but also this is important to them. I know I'm going to get their full attention and they're incredibly invested to give me a win. Those are the guys that I want to work with, right? I mean, they're going to go to war on my behalf. Our incentives are completely aligned. They have the chops. They have what it takes to get a great outcome and I have their full attention. That's who I want to work with. And then the third thing I would say is also, Work with people you like. Work with people that you actually enjoy working with and being around. Because this is a long, difficult, arduous process. And a lot of things can go wrong. And so working with people that you actually just enjoy and, and think that they're good people and wouldn't mind getting stuck in an airport with, that's also important. 
That's an interesting one, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and, you know, all those, all those points uh, make a lot of sense. Get an advisor to help make sure you have uh, solid, you know, all three legs of your stool are solid and make sure they're going to see it through to the end, I believe you said as well. Okay. That they're motivated, that they, you're, you're an important client to them. Don't just focus on a big name, focus on finding somebody that you're going to be really important to, and they're going to put their best effort to help you win. Yeah. Even if the team is the most talented in the world, it's hard to beat the personal touch from someone who's giving you their all. Exactly. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for your time and the really great discussion today. Great to be on Marcus. Appreciate you guys. Love what you guys do. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I'd like to also thank Logan Growth Advisors as well for sponsoring the episode. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our, surprise, surprise, podcast page. Y'all have a great one.